0: Hello then and welcome to Passing the Baton number 49 and it's May 2011. The title of this month's teaching is A Glorious Church and Ephesians five twenty-seven in the New American Standard Bible says this that he might present the church to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. Let's pray, shall we, before we begin. Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning, Lord we revere your name. We bless and thank you for sending your Son Jesus and your precious Holy Spirit to be our comforter and guide on our life's journey. Help us, Lord, now as we come to look at your will for your Bride, to open our hearts fully to the scrutiny of your Holy Spirit so that he can remove all that is unsightly. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what he's saying to each of us. Help us to take courage and step into the fire of your love and allow you to burn off all that is unsightly. Quicken to us the shortness of the hour. Prepare us, Lord, in our hearts to receive the authority and power you desire to bestow upon your bride before Jesus, our bridegroom, comes for us. In his name and for his sake. Amen. The poet John McCrae said in his work in Flanders Fields, Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you, from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. Happily, at the moment, my hands are not yet failing, but I am certainly throwing a torch to anyone who will catch it and run with it. Henry Van Dyke, an American Christian who died in 19- 1933, said this, Self is the only prison that can bind the soul. If we are serious about pressing toward the goal of maturity in these days of increasing darkness we will do well to heed the writers of the past who also lived in perilous times. It has been given to us to prepare ourselves for our bridegroom as no generation before us. The signs are clear in the world around us. You will find as we progress in this teaching that I will quote from a number of sources, any of which it would profit you to read, if you are serious about the call to come up higher which is on your life and the call to be ready. As lovingly as I can I have to tell you that the church in this country is behind the times in its own development. We are seriously lagging the field and we need to learn to run in order to catch up with what God wants to do in this moment. Those who can hear will tell you there is a sound coming out of heaven in these days which is awakening the bride to the majesty and supremacy of her bridegroom and her royal calling. Night is fast approaching, Jesus said, when no man can work. We need to hear and respond both to the call to awaken and the warning that night is fast approaching, where we will be the only visible light. If our light is darkness, what then will we do? How great will be our darkness! For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. That was Isaiah 60, verse 2 in the New American Standard Bible. It is so important that we are not like Israel who ignored the voice of the prophets and that we heed the voices of those who speak to awaken us who are becoming increasingly urgent in their call in order that we are fully prepared and armed for the battle which lies ahead of us. It's so important That we do not roll over having heard their words and go back to sleep. Jesus is coming back for a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. It is time for the bride to prepare herself for the wedding and for battle. And to do this we need to awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14 Much of what we've already spoken about this year has been about running the race and obtaining the prize that is set aside for us. Now we need to get specific about the things that will preclude us from stepping into our royal calling, from inheriting the Kingdom, from being ready for Jesus' return. Someone once said, the Kingdom of God will not be advanced by our churches being filled with people but by people in our churches becoming filled with God. So the question is, are you filled with God? Are you as an individual ready if Jesus were appear today? Is your slate completely clean with him? Or is there something in your life that you would not like him to expose? Are there things that you have brushed under the carpet or delayed addressing until a more opportune time? Or is there unfinished business that you haven't completed, something that he has repeatedly told you to do and you still haven't got around to? Are there other things you've been told to do and haven't done? Questions only you can answer. God will not let any of us go until his will and his word is fulfilled. Until we get it, we speak it, we hear it, we see it, we eat it, we drink it, we stand in it, we walk in it, we run with it, we fight with it, we live it. It's quite a balancing act for me to convey the loving-kindness and father-heart of God and all that encompasses, whilst at the same time explaining his ongoing need to correct us. If we're to look the scriptures in the eye, we must see both the goodness and the severity of God. Romans 11.22 in the Message If God didn't think twice about taking pruning shears to the natural branches, why would he hesitate over you? He wouldn't give it a second thought. Make sure you stay alert to those qualities of gentle kindness and ruthless severity that exist side by side in God. Ruthless with the dead wood, gentle with the grafted shoot. But don't presume on this gentleness. The moment you become dead wood, you're out of there. The husbandman comes looking for fruit, and he will ruthlessly chop off every branch that is not bearing fruit, that it may bear fruit abundantly. John fifteen one and 2 in the NIV I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. God is coming to remove anything in your life that isn't producing good fruit, fruit that will remain. He is coming with those pruning shears so that you will be clothed and not naked on that day. Whatever he does is kindness because the result will profit you. You will be gloriously dressed on your wedding day. Derek Prince used to say he didn't want to be wearing clothes that would expose his buttocks meaning he didn't want to fall short of all the good things father had laid up for him to do in this life. I remember hearing him say that God had told him he still had books to write and he did it before he went home. God has laid up a store of things that he wants you to achieve. Question is, do you know what they are, and are you pressing on to apprehend them? Our salvation is secure, nothing can alter that. We're children of God, but it's His will that we do not stop at childhood, but become fully mature adults. So the message to today's church is that of increasing intimacy, obedience, holiness, purity, humility, and power jeremiah six sixteen 16 in the amplified thus says the lord stand by the roads and look and ask for the eternal paths where the good old way is then walk in it and you will find rest for your souls israel never did jeremiah preached for 40 years or so and they never ever listened And for us too. They shut the road through the woods 70 years ago. Weather and rain have undone it again. And now you would never know there was once a road through the woods. That's Rudyard Kipling. Weather and rain have undone the clear paths that God has laid down for us to walk in. And now you would never know there was once a road through the woods undoubtedly the road to holiness which is a separation and consecration to God is shut up in the church in this day and age. Those who are called to be a counterculture are just like the culture around them and indeed would fight to stay like it. And my people the Lord says love to have it so. Jeremiah 5:31. 31 The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so but what will you do at the end of it what will you do at the end of it good question obedience holiness purity and humility are the old paths the neglected highways that have fallen into disrepair but there is a promise of restoration Isaiah 35 8 New King James Version. And a highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Isaiah, here portraying the future glory of Zion, rejoices in the restoration of not only the nation, but God's highway of holiness. Before Jesus comes again, beloved, his people will make their way back to his ways and will live their lives the way he intended, showing forth the glory of God as they point to the way of salvation. They will be a holy people, separated unto him, living for him, abandoned to him, filled with God. He himself will do it. Jesus has kindled a fire upon the earth and for 2,000 plus years we've been trying to put it out. Luke twelve forty nine to 53 in the message. Headed up to start a fire. I've come to start a fire on this earth. How I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything, turn everything right side up. How I long for it to be finished. Do you think I came to smooth things over and make everything nice? Not so. I've come to disrupt and confront. From now on, when you find five in a house, it'll be three against two and two against three, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against bride and bride against mother-in-law. Jesus speaking. Does that shock you? Wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is the fire of the Lord. It's a fire which separates and purifies everything it touches. It's not a fire that will harm you, but purify you. He calls you to step into that fire, because that fire dwells within you, unless you have quenched it. God is a blazing fire of love. A blazing fire of love which will burn up all the dross in your life. Remove every stain, every wrinkle, and make you fit to stand before him clothed in your wedding garment, which is the righteous acts He's prepared in advance for you to do. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 And the marriage of the Lamb Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In His great grace and mercy, He's calling us today back to basics, back to those forgotten virtues of obedience, purity, holiness, Humility and dependence upon him and him alone which arise from intimacy with the Almighty. Andrew Murray says in his little book Humility The life God bestows is imparted not once and for all but each moment continuously by the unceasing operation of his mighty power. Humility the place of entire dependence on God is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of man. It is the root of every virtue. Absolute surrender, absolute dependence on Him alone as we approach the consummation of the ages. It will be those who have learned the lesson that it is not by might, not by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts who will see the glory of God because God cannot do through us what he has not been able to do in us that was Zechariah 4 verse 6 in the Amplified Bible so that was all a preamble and here we come with the introduction so this is a message for the Bride of Christ It is the Father's will that she be in these last days the spotless glorious companion of an incredible King. A bride of unsurpassed beauty, abundant in grace, mercy and truth, walking in all the power and authority of the risen Christ. It is also his will that she be an army, trained and ready for the final battle which lies ahead. Presently there is a gap between what we will be and what we are. But God calls the things that are not as though they are and that gap is closing. Heaven is pressing down and Father is calling his children back to basics, back to his basic requirements in order that we may walk with him in unbroken fellowship. And then we may hear from him and as we hear, do the works that Jesus did and greater works than these that the world may marvel that the harvest may come in and that Jesus will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Isaiah 53:11. God's love is towards us, his grace is with us, and his favor is on us, but there are certain fundamental truths we must both know and practice. If we are to come into our promised land, we have a part to play. There are old disciplines to which we need to return if we are to be that glorious bride who is without spot or wrinkle. This may require a little pressure and a little heat on our lives to remove the spots and iron out the wrinkles. We are in a father-child relationship with God and that never changes. We are always accepted but not always approved. On good days we are both accepted and approved. On bad days we're not necessarily in fellowship with him. And that's our subject for today. Putting in place the disciplines that will keep us in fellowship and abiding in the vine. So we're going to start with obedience. It's my experience that most Christians look upon obedience to God as optional. They'll do what their boss at work tells them, but when it comes to obeying the Lord they're dilatory. Negligent, lazy, lagging behind. God carries the theme of obedience right through his word. We can trace it from Genesis to Revelation, from beginning to end, from paradise lost to paradise regained, God's law is unchangeable. Only obedience gives man access to the tree of life and the abundance of God. The missing jewel is that it was the obedience of Jesus which brought us back into the life of abiding and obedience. Hebrews 10.7 tells us this. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. There are two words for will in the Greek, boulema and telema. Boulema is spelt b-o-u-l-e-m-a and telema t-h-e-l-e-m-a. The first has to do with God's sovereign determined purpose which is unfolding and doesn't depend on man's cooperation. The second is God's desire. When Jesus said in Mark 3.35 reading from the NIV whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother he was speaking of the wish or will of his father Telema. This was the father's desire that we should do his will Perhaps we will, perhaps we won't. It's dependent on our cooperation. Noah did all that God commanded him genesis six twenty two and seven, five, nine, and sixteen, by faith, Abraham obeyed hebrews eleven eight on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses this message for the people of Israel. Exodus 19:5 Now then if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be my own possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine And Jesus said John 14:15 and 21 in the New American Standard Bible If you love me you will keep my commandments He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. So we see that it's only in walking in obedience that Jesus discloses himself to us, that we become intimately acquainted with him, know his heartbeat and hear his instructions. He says, if you permit me, I will work in your life so that your will can be lined up with mine and you will find yourself desiring the Father's will, just as I did. If you love me, you will let me do this, because the measure of your love is the measure of your obedience. And your obedience is the starting point of true holiness which is separation to God. 1 Peter one fourteen to 14-16, New American Standard As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves in all your behaviour, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Obedience is the eternal purpose of the Father. The Christian life is first and foremost characterized by obedience to the truth. Who is a person? 1 John 2.4 in the Message If someone claims I know him well, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's obviously a liar. His life doesn't match his words. But the one who keeps God's word is the person in whom we see God's mature love. This is the only way to be sure we're in God. Anyone who claims to be intimate with God ought to live the same life as Jesus lived. A defective spiritual life is always the result of damaged intimacy. There is no substitute for intimacy with God. Obedience obedience flows naturally from the moment-by-moment loving relationship with Him, hearing and seeing what He is doing. It's in that place, and only in that place, we receive our instructions. And it's always intensely personal. God says, I love you, return my love, love me, obey me. It takes God to love God. The mark of a true disciple is that they are always learning, they are constantly in a place of being taught. In a faithful scholar there are several elements that make up his feelings towards his teacher. He submits himself entirely to the teacher. He has perfect trust in him and he gives the teacher as much time and attention as he asks. When we see Jesus and the Precious Holy Spirit as our teachers and yield to their requests for our time and attention, obedience is a natural and loving consequence. Wholehearted surrender to their guidance and implicit submission to their authority, it's not a chore. He requests our attention because He desires to lead us into the path of righteousness holiness, purity and power, but without loving obedience we will be powerless, ineffectual, weak and feeble. He wants to energize his people that the world may see the risen Christ. To do that we must open up the old paths, unblock the wells, walk into his fire and allow him to be Lord of our lives not just Saviour. So the next thing we need to look at is holiness. Many Christians look for shortcuts to the power of God. Uh, To look for shortcuts is to become at best frustrated, at worst a false prophet or a teacher. There is tremendous power for us in God, but not without holiness. Hebrews 12.14 NIV Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Remember, holiness is a separation, a consecration in our hearts to him. It's not going into a nunnery. It's not not going out into the world and and being with people. You only need to see how Jesus was. And he never slipped in his holiness. He went everywhere. He would be in the red light district of Amsterdam if he was here now. Holiness is in the heart. As the Lord brings us into maturity... Those attributes we consider to be our strengths, we find, are in fact our weaknesses. Our pride and self-confidence keep us from God's help, and the clamour of our own ideas and desires drowns out the still, small voice. In time we discover that all true strength, all true effectiveness, and our very holiness itself begins with discovering our need. We grow weaker and less and less sure of ourselves, as the outer shell of self-righteousness crumbles. Jesus himself is the source of our holiness. He is our all-sufficiency in everything. From holiness flows purity. We don't wish to contaminate our relationship with him by touching that which is unclean but we don't need rules to keep us pure. Our desire for him is what motivates us. Purity again is internal. It's an attitude of heart. Jesus touched the lepers who were unclean and we will touch those whom the world looks upon as unclean when we have the purity of heart that sees them as he sees them. and then there's walking in the light. 1 John 1, 5-7 in the message, headed up, walk in the light. This, in essence, is the message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in Him. If we claim that we experience a shared life with Him and continue to stumble around in the dark, We're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light, we also experience a shared life with one another as the sacrificed blood of Jesus, God's Son, purges all our sin. We all love to hear about grace. But the subject of judgment of any kind is one from which we shy away because of the implications of punishment that we associate with it. But the Bible itself speaks a lot about judgment. And when Father speaks of judgment in relation to us, his children, it's as his discipline, not punishment. And it relates to our training, instruction and education. As the perfect parent, God trains us for our profit. So it is important that we understand his ways with us and cooperate with him. Hebrews twelve five and 6 NIV says this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Those whom the Lord loves he will discipline, rebuke and if necessary chasten, which includes the words subdue, restrain and make humble. It's the proof that we are loved, accepted and approved. God is calling us in these last days to come over to his side and walk in the light as he is in the light. Beloved, he can't bring judgment on the world if he has not first examined his own children. This is why Peter says, in 1 Peter 4.17, It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Walking in the light means no more hiding from him ourselves or other people. When Adam fell he hid. This was the beginning of the most terrible distortion of what we were created to be as well as a severe reduction of our intellectual and spiritual capacities. And these faculties, these capacities of ours, are only fully restored to us when we come out of hiding. As we open ourselves first to God and then to each other and become increasingly transparent laying aside those masks pulling down those protective barricades and all those self-defense mechanisms coming out of hiding it's as we behold the glory of the lord with unveiled faces that we are changed into his image those veils are caused by our hiding if we are truly to walk in the light then it's important that we learn how to both judge or examine ourselves. Searching our own hearts so that he will not have to examine us. That we humble ourselves so that he won't have to do that either. And that we walk with a degree of purity in our lives. 1 Corinthians 11, 28, 29 and 31 and 32. New American Standard again. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he doesn't judge the body rightly. But if we discerned ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Examine here is the Greek word dokamazo, D O K I M A Z O, which means to test, examine, or scrutinize, as of testing metal. Judgment is the word krino, K R I N O, which means judging and passing a sentence. And judge is the word diokrino. D-I-A-K-R-I-N-O which means to distinguish properly. So, if when we take the communion, the bread and the cup, we haven't examined ourselves first, we bring a sentence upon ourselves because we're not distinguishing properly God's heart. When we are judged or scrutinised by the Lord, he's questioning something in us which he wants to address. And that sometimes leads to discipline, and if we do not heed his voice, to chastening. How much better to learn to examine ourselves then on a regular basis in order that we don't store up trouble for ourselves. Many of us, I suspect, would abstain from taking the bread and the cup if we realised and recognised the seriousness of taking it with a wrong heart attitude. And then there is 1 Peter 5, 6, NIV. Humble yourselves therefore unto God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Quoting Andrew Murray again on humility, pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. Humbling ourselves is literally to bow down, and it is something we are instructed to do. If you find it difficult to be wrong, difficult to apologise or say sorry, difficult to submit to God, difficult to take correction or be taught, you may just have a problem with pride, and you may need to learn how to humble yourself before Him. Pride is the root and branch of every evil thing. It leads to the exercise of the gift, quotes, of suspicion in the body of Christ. Beloved, it's time to stop the infighting and respond to our call. Division in the body is diverting us from our purpose and destiny which is to affect the nation in which we live. God desires to lift us up. He desires to exalt us. He desires that we both be strong and courageous and He desires that we are not self-deceived in these last days. There are things that he wants to commission us to do, mighty works which will change the history of this nation. But he cannot give us these assignments if we don't practice basic disciplines. We are to be salt and light. There is tremendous unrighteousness and injustice in this nation and it is his people whom he desires to raise up to demonstrate both righteousness and justice in their own lives in such a way that they are examples to others who will be drawn to them." Hey, how brilliant would it be if people were convicted simply by being around you without a word being spoken? Purity, holiness, humility? It happened to Smith Wigglesworth, why not you? Micah eight New American Standard He's told you, O oh man, what's good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And then there are the twins' confession and repentance. Derek Prince once said, Unconfessed sin is sin which is unforgiven. This comment burnt itself into my heart and caused me to begin self-examination on a regular basis and it's something I do several times a day and have done for years in order that I may walk in the light as he is in the light and be in fellowship with my Father on a continuous basis. 1 John 1, 8 to 10 The message: If we claim that we're free of sin we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. On the other hand, if we admit our sins, make a clean breast of them, he won't let us down. He'll be true to himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all wrongdoing. If we claim that we've never sinned, we out and out contradict God. We make a liar out of him. A claim like that only shows off our ignorance of God. Sin is an unpopular and unfashionable word in our sophisticated 21st century. We scarcely use it, but the Bible uses it without restraint to describe how we wander off the path or miss the way. In Hebrew, it is the word katar, C H A double T double A C H. That's an archery term for missing the bullseye, or missing the target. In our daily walk we miss the path of uprightness. We miss it, we all do it, every one of us. No blame, no shame, but something needs to be done about it. The Bible also uses two other words, they are iniquity and transgression. Iniquity carries with it a more serious intent of the heart. It is used mainly regarding an intentional stepping away from God and a rebellion against Him. And it includes words such as perverse, stubborn, obstinate and headstrong. And is used of the attitude of heart of those who are bent or twisted away from Him and opposed to Him like a child who is determined to have its own way and is pulling on the father's hand to go in the opposite direction to that which he's leading. It's no pleasure for either of them and the child isn't going to win. I have been party to the agonies of some people who have been genuinely and gloriously saved. But inside their heart were renegade affections which stubbornly held them to what they thought was best for them and they never completely let go or surrendered themselves to the Father's love. Their hearts were still pulling them towards something other than him. They quickly moved from being glorious, spontaneous, (coughs) overflowing believers to being some of the most unhappy souls I've ever met. They didn't realize that they would never find love that would meet their needs in any other than in him, because no one could satisfy them other than him. But they continued to yearn for past times. They are, as Roger Price so succinctly puts it, zigzagging across the desert looking desperately for freedom and fulfillment. These people are usually very dissatisfied and unhappy. Because their affections have never been successfully reoriented, and this puts them out of alignment with the father and prevents them from enjoying the fullness of his love and all his blessings. Francois Fenelon says it this way in his little book *Let Go*, which is published by Whitaker House. It is by the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of selfish impurity. That we are made children of Abraham's family of faith. And like Abraham we are able to leave our native country without knowing where we're going. What a blessed lot in life! To leave all and yield ourselves to the cutting knife of God's circumcision. Who could do the job of cutting away sin better than he? Our own hands would never put the knife in the right place we would cut away only a little of the fat and bring about a few superficial changes. We do not understand ourselves well enough to know where to cut. We could never find the sensitive spot but God finds it easily. And even if we knew where the spot were located self-love would hold back the knife and spare itself. So the third word is transgression and this is a stepping over of a known boundary, a trespass. We know that God has said don't do that but we do it just the same just to see how far we can go without getting caught. So what do we do when we are convicted about any of these things? We first confess, we own up, we plead guilty and then we repent. These two words are well-known in Christian-speak but they aren't, in my experience, words which are actually put into practice much. But confession and repentance are two basic requirements of our ongoing relationship with God. If we neglect these, we will find there is a strange distance developing between us and Him. We don't hear Him as we used to, we can't get guidance and we wonder why we seem to be having a wilderness experience. Beloved, we just wandered off the path. So, in his great grace, God brings us back to basics. The first word, confess, is the Greek word homologio, which means to say the same thing as someone else. I'll spell it for you, h-o-m-o-l-o-g-e-o, homologio. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, iniquity, or transgression, He just makes us feel guilty when we are guilty. We confess to Him. We speak in agreement with Him, and make haste to realign ourselves. We come before Him with what we know is wrong, and confess. We agree. You're right. I'm wrong. And He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us as we call on the shed blood of Jesus. And then we turn in repentance. And the Greek word is metanoe, M E T A N O E O, which is to perceive afterwards. Bring a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction and thinking. We have an ow oh, moment which brings with it. A change for the better and an amendment and repentance a turning from what we've just confessed. The Holy Spirit is brilliant as this. at this. As we agree with him, he moves in power to change us for we cannot change ourselves. That beloved is grace and grace is God's power to change us from the inside out. So our daily walk is meant to be consistent in both repentance and confession, agreeing with him and walking in the grace of God, because he desires fellowship with us 24-7, and he can't fellowship with unrighteousness, which is darkness. So he's provided a way. Brilliant. We are clean, Jesus told us, by the washing of water of regeneration it is in our daily walk that we get our feet dirty, which requires that we wash them at least once a day before him. If we say we are without sin we deceive ourselves. So, to the word deception. Deception, you may be surprised to learn, is anything that we do not see as he sees or anything that we do not understand as he understands. So as I referred to the communion table earlier and coming there and discerning the body in a wrong way I'm meaning where we are judging other Christians, other people and we think we are right and that he agrees with us. Deception is anything we don't see as he sees or anything we don't understand as he understands knowing the level of our own deception will cause us to become humble and walk meekly with him none of us is where we think we are none of us know very much paul said in his classic passage on love in 1 corinthians 13 We know in part and we prophesy in part. Humility says, I don't know, I don't have all the answers, but I am willing to learn. It's moldable, correctable and teachable. It's a great deception to think that because we have supernatural revelation or power we must be thinking the way he thinks in everything. Uh The greatest are only given the tiniest understanding of how he thinks. We only think like him when we are in perfect union with him and very few have ever attained this. So it moves naturally into judge not, lest ye be judged. We all miss the mark, particularly in the area of loving one another my thoughts of love are not your thoughts of love but Lord Isaiah 55 8 in the message I don't think the way you think and the way you work isn't the way I work the way we see things is just not the way he sees them so we may be unaware that bitterness harshness judgmentalism criticism and unkindness are actually all signs of broken fellowship with Him. Because wrong attitudes towards others will cause a breakdown in our fellowship with the Father. We are out of alignment with Him. I love God, it's people I have a problem with. Don't come to the communion table with an attitude like that. Put it right. He just doesn't see things the way we do. Criticism and judgement ruin our fellowship with God. It ends up leaving us hard, vindictive and cruel. And with a perception that we are somehow superior. Because we think he agrees with us. But it affects our fellowship with him and blocks the flow of blessing from our lives and the lives of others. And even if it's only in our mind, if you're telling me now it never comes out of your mouth, sooner or later it will. Luke six forty five NIV A good man brings good things out of the goods stored up in his heart. Your heart is like a container. It's storing something. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks out what the heart is full of. Most of us won't be in overt sin, transgressing the Ten Commandments, committing murder or adultery, but we will be committing attitude sins, which we may try to justify. So we learn to be severer in our judgment of ourselves than of anyone else. Our prayer must be, deal with me ruthlessly, and correct me severely, and never mind about the other fellow because Jesus says what's that to you follow me John twenty one twenty there is nothing to fear from God if we are compliant and humble ourselves up and humble ourselves constantly before him we should welcome his loving corrections as they're transforming us into the image of Jesus and preparing us for our destiny and eternity with him so we need to embrace the cross not run away from it Accepting this as an ongoing process is the most important part of our lives. Learning to walk closely with the Holy Spirit, knowing Him and His ways, and becoming increasingly sensitive to Him as we allow Him to change us by His grace, as we respond to His correction of our motives, attitudes and thoughts. He's the Minister of the Interior, you know. Blame-shifting, resistance, denial or attempts to justify ourselves is foolishness. Because it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. So, what can we learn from Israel? 1 Corinthians 10.11 in the NIV. These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Paul says that what happened to Israel is recorded for our instruction. We're not accountable in the same way as they were but we do have an advantage over them inasmuch as we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But we must learn from their mistakes. So let's look at some of the incidents in the Old Testament and see what caused them to miss the mark so badly. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan, Abiram, sons of Eliab and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders, who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. That's Numbers 16, 1-4. and it's Korah's Rebellion. Moses adopts the position. He humbles himself before God, knowing that what Korah and his helpers are doing will incur the anger of God because this was an organised, well thought out attempt at a takeover. They coveted what he had. Korah and company were jealous of Moses. They felt he was setting himself too high and secretly plotted to remove him from his position as the spokesman of God. Korah was a rebel, but not only that, he drew others along with him, as did Absalom, the son of David, when he drew the people to himself in an effort to take his father's throne. The lesson for us here, beloved of God, is this, do not covet. Do not ever be the one who gathers others around you to rise up against God's ordained leadership. Such rebellion, for that is what it is, will be judged by God. There's a huge accountability for such behaviour, the root of which is covetousness. James MacDonald says in his book, Lord, change my attitude before it's too late. At the root of covetousness is a rejection of God's sufficiency What will it take for us to come to that settled place where the central passion of our lives is God? What a good question! But before you judge Cora, recognise that inside of every one of us is a rebel. Oh, we don't wake up in the morning and say, I think I'll rebel today. Our attitudes push us to that place. Rebellion has many sources. Humbling ourselves constantly before God, because that is who we are ultimately rebelling against, will deal with that which is inborn in us. And believe me, darlings, I did not read that in a book. I've been there. Rebellion against proper authority of any kind reveals a deep-rooted rejection of God's authority, and it's serious. There is no heart that God has a harder time dealing with and changing than a rebellious heart. In the Old Testament there was an offering for what was called the sin of ignorance and that is what most often it is for us. We are ignorant of these things. We are ignorant of the fact that the way we think and behave towards God and people is wrong. We are ignorant even of our own rebellion which is classed by him as sin, we think he agrees with us. We take his silence as his approval. Many years ago, when I read about the sin of ignorance, I confessed it, and I confess it regularly. How do we, as finite beings, know when we are transgressing or sinning against the Infinite? He is so beautiful, so amazing, so wonderful. His heart is so huge. We must do it a dozen times a day without realising. So to confess the sin of ignorance is a brilliant idea. Keeps our slates really clean. Because there are things in our hearts beloved of which we have no conception until the Holy Spirit reveals them. He can't cohabit with them because they interrupt our fellowship with the Father. And allowing him to both reveal and deal with them is our ongoing process. So be open to him. Expect the loving correction and discipline of God because discipline is always a family matter. He's training you to fulfill your destiny in this life and live in his presence for eternity. For your own sake, don't run away from him, or make excuses. Years ago, I received from some brilliant advice from Steve Sampton Sampson, and he said this: when you come before him, just plead guilty. It saves a lot of time. He was half joking when he said it, but it is so true. Come before him and plead guilty cause there will be something you've done, and then ask for the desire to love him with all your heart so that you want nothing to come between you and him nothing that would mar this beautiful relationship deal with me ruthlessly and correct me severely Lord God the late Judson Cornwall in his book what is there about no that you don't understand says this our minds tend to reject all negative statements and our eyes skip over the word no as if it were not on the page god knows that our insistence on having our own way causes us to gloss over a negative whether it's spoken or written nevertheless there are things he tells us for our own good which sometimes simply have to be enforced and this is where we experience not only the rebuke but sometimes the discipline or even the punishment of our God for our restoration. Again the history of Israel shows us that when God's great heart said no, when he said don't flirt with anything which isn't of me, they wouldn't take this no for an answer. They neglected to keep away from that which God prohibited and to do which God had told them not to do what God had told them not to do and they moved into rebellion which eventually incurred God's discipline and ultimately, rather right at the end of it, they lost their inheritance. They accommodated things that God did not appreciate, enjoy or value. They were passive in their response to Him and active in their rebellion to His commands. Their history is an example to us that it's not how you start the race but how you finish it. He who puts his armour on doesn't boast in the same way as he who takes it off. 1 Kings 20 verse 11. That great king Solomon, son of David, built the temple in Jerusalem. He started so well. But he was lured away from the living God by the wives that he married. He started off on fire for God, but he ended in an ash heap. A broken man who wrote Ecclesiastes. The thoughts of an old soul, an out of fellowship, disillusioned believer. He tried everything, pursued pleasure for its own sake, only to find it turned to ashes in his hands. Pursuit of the world will always do this. Ecclesiastes 2:10 and 11, New King James Version. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I didn't withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labour, and this was my reward from all my labour. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labour in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. The pursuit of the pleasure of the world is empty at last. Solomon ignored the warning that God gave him in 2 Chronicles 7 19 to 21 at the dedication of the temple. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them Then I will uproot them from my my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight, and will make it a proverb and a byword among all people. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Here the generational sin of lust, David with Bathsheba, is worked out through his son Solomon with disastrous results. Solomon loved many foreign women and followed their pagan practices which God had expressly forbidden. This disobedience brought its reward and the process of judgment began affecting the whole nation and the kingdom of Israel established unto David. The whole kingdom was torn in two after Solomon's death and became two nations at war with each other. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. You can read the story in 1 Kings 11 to 13 Solomon led the nation in a downward slide into idolatry from which Israel never fully recovered. The whole nation became corrupt because of the lifestyle of its leader. The Bible shows us that Israel walked contrary to God over an extremely long period of time and eventually, after many, many warnings and an increasing severity of rebuke, God brought punishment on them because of their willful disobedience. They were short-sighted, naked and blind. Jesus said the same thing to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3.17 in the Amplified. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and grown wealthy, and I am in need of nothing. And you do not realise and understand that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked.